Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Hi, this is Rabbi Morty Schwartz. Welcome again to Daily Daf Differently. Today it's my privilege to take you through Nazir Daf 13. Uh, once again, we have a situation where most of the this particular Daf is related to a set of Mishnayot. In this case, Nazir 2, 7 and 2, 8. That is the 7th and the 8th Mishnah of Masechet Nazir. Uh, and um, the Gemara presents them as one unit. These two Mishnayot is a single unit. Uh, they actually appear at the bottom of 12b and uh, then the beginning of 13a. Uh, we're going to discuss them, as the Gemara does, as one single unit. And the topic of this particular unit is actually uh, an insight into the motivation for becoming, or one, an insight into one particular motivation for becoming a Nazir. Uh, the Mishnah concern uh, the, t- the following topic. If a person actually makes a vow that when they have a child, they're going to become a Nazir, uh, what are the various ramifications of such a vow? So in other words, uh, we have a situation where a person is uh, concerned about the health or the potential uh, of having a child, the potential uh, for loss of that child, or the potential for miscarriage or the potential for a problem in the health of the child when it comes out. And so they actually make this vow to become a Nazir. I I think probably as kind of like a protective gesture, either that or some kind of statement of, of gratitude to uh, to God when the child is actually born. However, the vow was actually made before the birth of the child. Presumably, uh, th- either the the wife is not yet pregnant or she's just gotten pregnant or she's in the state of pregnancy, and the individual makes the vow to become a Nazir when the healthy child is born. Uh, we're going to see there's also uh, a variety of other kinds of conditions and ramifications that surround this Mishnah as we read through it. Uh, the Gemara has three main questions about this Mishnah. We'll discuss those three questions also when we get uh, through the Mishnah. So let me let me read these these two Mishnayot, which are presented as a single unit in the Gemara. So the person says, Hareini Nazir, I'm going to be a Nazir, Keshieli Ben, when I have a son. Now the word Ben in Hebrew is a really interesting one, uh, because most of the time, as you know, the word Ben means son. But it can also uh, refer to a child in general. Um, And so it's unclear probably at this point uh, whether we're talking about simply a child, right? Or if we actually mean a a son, right? A uh, a, a male male progeny, as they would say. So obviously male progeny in this period is uh, considered better uh, than female progeny. It's a patriarchal society. Uh, they have not yet uh, developed a, a consciousness of gender egalitarianism. Uh, and so uh, this individual is looking for an heir, someone to continue on the family name, male progeny that's going to, uh, uh, you know, sort of 
be someone who is a, uh, a full active participant in the world as opposed to women in this period who are more restricted in the home. It is a patriarchal society. So fine. So uh, he says, um, if I have a son, no lad lo ben, Hareza Nazir. So the Mishnah says, okay, in such a circumstance, if he has a son, then in fact he's Nazir. But if he has a daughter, however, Tumtum, right? Or if he has someone with doubtful looking genitalia, it's un, you're unable to determine whether uh, he, this child is male or female, the Andraginos, or if the uh, child is born with uh, both sexes, in other words, some kind of hermaphroditic child. So these uh, these categories are, are standard ca rabbinic categories. The tumtum is actually uh, described uh, as someone whose gender is uh, indeterminable, right? They they seem to conceptualize it as the, as if there's some kind of flap of skin or some kind of additional layer of skin that covers over the genitalia so it can't be seen. It's probably just that the genitalia is actually indeterminate, indeterminate and the androgynous is someone who seems to have both or have aspects of both. Uh, and uh, in any case, uh, with both of those cases, we, we, we are, or I should say the rabbis of the Mishnah are, uh, are unable to determine whether we're actually talking about a male or a female child. Eno Nazir. In such a circumstance, if he has a daughter or one of these indeterminate gender categories, then he is, uh, the intersex categories, then he is not a Nazir. Why? Because his vow was that he would be a Nazir if he had a son. That's the idea. The uh, imamar, but if he says, Kesha ereli Vlad, when I see that I have a child, right, that he's going to be a Nazir if he sees that he has a child, a filu noladlo, but even if he has a daughter, tumtumva andraginos, or one of these two intersex categories, hareza Nazir, then he would have to be a Nazir. Why? Because in such a circumstance, he made the vow that he was going to be a Nazir when he had viable offspring. He pila ishto ena Nazir. If his wife miscarries, then he is not a Nazir. Rabbi Shimon Omer, Rabbi Shimon says the following thing. Yomar im haya ben kaima hareni nazir chovav im lav hareni nazir nidava. He should say, oh, in the case of, of a stillbirth, if, I, uh, if this child was in fact a viable child and there was something untoward that happened in the process of the birth, then I shall be a nazir chovav. I shall be an obligatory Nazir. The Imlav, but if that was not the case, Hareini Nazir Nidava, then I am going to be a voluntary Nazir. Now, this requires some explanation. So, first of all, the idea uh, with, with regard to stillbirth is that there are uh, three different categories of children in the halachic mind. One is a child who was born at, uh, at nine months, at the full nine-month term, and that child is a Ben Kaima. That's a child who would have been viable if for some accident hadn't occurred at the time of birth. And then there's a seven-month child, right? And that child is also considered to be a Ben Kaima. They have this notion that there are some children who come to full term at seven months. This is, comes out of Greek medicine. Medicine was an idea that they had in the ancient world, but in any case, that child is also considered to be a ben kaima, a child who would have been viable if not for this accident that occurred during birth. And then there's a third category, which is someone who is, or a child who is not a ben kaima, a child who is not really viable. That's the child who's born at eight months, which is simply considered to be 
uh, a nine-month baby who hasn't come to term and is therefore not really a, a viable child. Now, I should also pause here uh, in, the, in the course of, the, of our discussion to talk about the emotional states that the Talmud describes surrounding loss of children. It, it's very clear, very, very clear that uh, the loss of a child was a very, very, particularly a young child, was a very, very, very common experience in the uh, ancient world. Uh, infant mortality rates were extraordinarily high, and um, it was just pervasive uh, and expected. Uh, and in today's society, where we have modern medicine, the loss of a child, even a young child, is considered to be a, a sort of life-shattering event, probably because it is so rare. Uh, in the ancient world, it was not conceptualized that way. It, it was assumed that people would lose children. It was assumed that it was something that was regular. People were prepared for the eventuality, uh, and they simply didn't respond. It's pretty clear from both rabbinic texts and other texts in the ancient world, you know, Greek texts, Latin texts, people did not respond to the death of small children in the same way that people do today. And that's something that we have to keep in mind uh, when we're going through this material. It seems like they're being cold and callous, especially Rebbe Shimon here, who's making, whose who's, who's primary concern seems to be about, well, how do I make sure that this vow is actually fulfilled uh, when I'm in a state of doubt, rather than being concerned about the emotional state, rather than taking up the pastoral issue of the, the, the care of the parent who's just lost a child, regardless of what, what vows they've made with regard to Nazir. Uh, and, and, and I just want to say very clearly, our take on the loss of young children, even things like stillbirth, are just utterly different, completely and totally different. I think it's cultural. I think it has to do with expectations, a whole range of things. But that's something that we have to sort of get in our heads in order to understand what's going on here in the Mishnah. So in any case, Rabbi Shimon's primary concern here seems to be, okay, he's had a child. And the question is, is this child viable or not? If there was an accident that occurred to a viable child that resulted in the death of the child at birth or shortly after birth, then the question becomes, is he really a Nazir or not? And Rabbi Shimon's solution is to say that he's, he should make some kind of pronouncement saying, well, if this child really was a viable child, then I have to actually fulfill my Nazir root and I'm trying to fulfill it. And if it's not, then I'm going to make some kind of new voluntary vow that has nothing to do with my original vow, and that's what this Nizirut is. Either way, he's going to fulfill a 30-day period of Nizirut uh, following the death of this child. Okay, so fine. Chazra v'yelda. So what happens if after this, uh, after he makes this pronouncement uh, about um, his Nizirut, right, that if it with the child was viable, he's going to go ahead and fulfill his term of Nazir in an obligatory manner, or if it wasn't, then he's going to simply fulfill it in a voluntary manner. What happens if, if after this his wife has another child, right? Hariza Nazir, according to Rabbi Shimon, he has to be a Nazir again, because again, you don't know if he fulfilled that, that, that obligatory period or not. And Rabbi Shimon's 
position seems to be safek nizirut lahachmir, that if I have a doubt about whether or not he, he has to fulfill his nizirut, he has to go ahead and be more strict and fulfill it. That does not seem to be the regnant position. The regnant position seems to be the first voice in the Mishnah here, the Tanakama, who says that he's not a Nazir. Now, Rabbi Shimon continues here. Rabbi Shimon Omer, Yomar im harishon haya ben kaima, harishonachova. Uh, he should say if the first one was in fact viable, then the first period of Nizirut was in fact an obligatory period, Vizonidava, and the one I'm doing now is voluntary. Vimlav, and if that's not the case, Harishona, the first one that I did immediately afterwards, Nidava, that was voluntary. Vizo, and this one that I'm doing right now is actually the obligatory one. In either case, uh, he has fulfilled both the, 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 at one point or another, he fulfilled his obligation based on his vow, and now there's some, either then or now, there's some voluntary kind of nizirut that he's doing also, in order simply to ensure that, in fact, he's doing nizir, he's fulfilling his obligation with regard to nizirut. And I, and I guess I want to I wanna point out here that the halakha does not follow Rebbe Shimon, this kind of crazy business of you know, doing one nizi route and then doing another nizi route simply out of out of doubt is not something that uh, that in fact um, the Talmud seems to require. So there are three questions that the, the the Talmud takes up on this page surrounding this complex of Mishnayot. Uh, the first one is um, is just what I would call the obviousness of the ruling um, in in at the beginning of the Mishnah where we say. Hareini Nazir, when he says, Behold, I am uh, going to be a Nazir, when I have a son. And then the Mishnah goes on to say, He's only a Nazir if he actually has a male child. And the, the Gemara comes and says, Well, that's kind of obvious. The word Ben means son. Um, and uh, really, probably the answer to this question, which the Gemara asks, is that Ben is a little bit more ambiguous than the Gemara is really willing to allow that, in fact, it probably can simply meet a, you know, a child as well, and that the mission is coming along to say, Ben means son in the context of these, uh, of these vows of Nizirut. Uh, but the, I guess the, 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 I should tell you what the Gemara actually ends up saying. It says, well, really that, that line, right, I'm going to be a Nazir if I have a son, and then going along and giving us the ruling, really that's only there to get us into the talk about, or into the, the conversation about the daughter, the tomb tomb, and the androgynous, right? The daughter and these two intersex categories. Um, and it, it, it turns it into a stylistic thing. This is very typical for uh, Mishnayot immediately, uh, uh, for, for, excuse me, for Sugyot immediately, passage in the Talmud immediately following Mishnayot. There seems to be, have been at a, at a fairly late period, a desire to, uh, to sort of focus on the language. Okay, so now the, the second question the Gemara brings up is this. Okay, let's say, then, in fact, he makes this vow that if he has a child, he's going to be a Nazir. And he puts aside sacrifices immediately at that moment, before the child is born, uh, to, for the completion ceremony of his Nizirut. And then his wife has a stillbirth, or the, uh, she has a miscarriage. And he's in this odd situation of having separated out these animals for sacrifice, but 
he's not going to be a Nazir now. So the question is, what is the status of these animals? Are these animals in the category of being sacred animals, which now can't be worked, can't be um, uh, used, like if they're sheep, they can't be sheared, the, all the, they, they simply belong to the temple? Or do we say that since the vow of Nizirut never happened, uh, he put them aside improperly, and so they're just regular animals? Well, the Gemara can't really make up its mind about that issue. this issue. It sort of leaves it as what we call a teku, a, uh, a, a tie, where it simply, it simply can't come up with an answer to the issue. Uh, the, the halakha, when you have such a teku, is, is, you, is you generally, the latter halakha tradition deals with it as a case of doubt in which we're more stringent. And so the animals would, in fact, be treated as if they were holy and they sort of have to be put aside until they either develop some invalidating, um, something in invalidating them physically from being a uh, sacrifice or they just simply, you know, sort of are, are out there. Um, and then the last question that the Gemara asks about this was, is when a person says, you know, I'm going to be a Nazir if I have a child, right? And he has a friend who's there and he says, yeah, me too. The ani that he wants to do the exact same thing. Does that mean when he says me too? Does that mean that when he, the person who hear who heard his friend make the vow, when he has a child, he's also going to be a nazir, or does it mean that he feels so sympathetic towards his friend that he's also going to do a period of nazirut in order to protect his friend's potential child? So we have Fred and Bob. Fred says, "I'm going to be a nazir if I have a child." And Bob says, yeah, me too. Does that mean that Bob is a Nazir when Fred has a child? Or does that mean that Bob is going to be a Nazir when Bob has a child? Uh, and once again, the Gemara can't really come to a conclusion about this. And it says that's a sort of an open question. Uh, I, 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 I actually really like it when the Gemara says, you know, these are great questions about the Mishnah, but they're ultimately unanswerable questions. In a real and practical and relevant sense, uh, one of the things we should think about is the promises that we make, right? I think that bargaining is, uh, is really a big part of uh, what happens when we go through the stresses of life. We turn to God and say, God, make this happen. If it only happens, I'll do X. So uh, the question is, what do you do when it doesn't happen? Do you still have to do X? X is probably, if you're actually saying it, X is probably something that you're picking out because it's something good for you to do anyway. So the question becomes, really, uh, in your, when you're in that bargaining state, uh, maybe what your subconscious is telling you to do is to do X anyway, and it might be a better thing for you to do, regardless of what the outcome of whatever it is you're bargaining for com comes about or doesn't come about. Okay, uh, that's it for today, and uh, we will talk again tomorrow. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Chorus album One Bead available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.